Section 16 of A Theological-Political Treatise by Baruch Benedict de Spinoza Translated by Robert Harvey Monroe Elvis This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Craster. Chapter 15 Theology is shown not to be subservient to reason, nor reason to theology. A definition of the reason which enables us to accept the authority of the Bible. Those who know not that philosophy and reason are distinct, dispute whether scripture should be made subservient to reason or reason to scripture that is whether the meaning of scripture should be made to agreed with reason or whether reason should be made to agree with scripture the latter position is assumed by the skeptics who deny the certitude of reason the former by the dogmatists both parties are as i have shown utterly in the wrong for either doctrine would require us to tamper with reason or with scripture we have shown that scripture does not teach philosophy but merely obedience and that all it contains has been adapted to the understanding and established opinions of the multitude those therefore who wish to adapt it to philosophy must needs ascribe to the prophets many ideas which they never dreamed of and give an extremely forced interpretation to their words those on the other hand who would make reason and philosophy subservient to theology will be forced to accept as divine utterances the prejudices of the ancient jews and to fill and confuse their mind therewith in short one party will run wild with the aid of reason and the other will run wild without the aid of reason the first among the pharisees who openly maintained that scripture should be made to agree with reason was maimonides whose opinion we reviewed and abundantly refuted in chapter seven now although this writer had much authority among his contemporaries he was deserted on this question by almost all and the majority went straight over to the opinion of a certain rabbi yehuda alpachar who in his anxiety to avoid the error of maimonides fell into another which was its exact contrary he held that reason should be made subservient and entirely give way to scripture he thought that a passage should not be interpreted metaphorically simply because it was repugnant to reason but only in the cases when it is inconsistent with scripture itself that is with its clear doctrines therefore he laid down the universal rule that whatsoever scripture teaches dogmatically and affirms expressly must on its own sole authority be admitted as absolutely true that there is no doctrine in the bible which directly contradicts the general tenor of the whole but only some which appear to involve a difference for the phrases of scripture often seem to imply something contrary to what has been expressly taught such phrases and such phrases only we may interpret metaphorically for instance scripture clearly teaches the unity of god see deuteronomy chapter six verse four nor is there any text distinctly asserting a plurality of gods but in several passages god speaks of himself and the prophets speak of him in the plural number such phrases are simply a manner of speaking and do not mean that there actually are several gods they are to be explained metaphorically not because a plurality of gods is repugnant to reason but because scripture distinctly asserts that there is only one so again as scripture asserts as alpachar thinks in deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 15 that god is incorporeal we are bound solely by the authority of this text and not by reason to believe that god has no body consequently we must explain metaphorically on the sole authority of scripture all those passages which attribute to god hands feet etc and take them merely as figures of speech such is the opinion of alpachar in so far as he seeks to explain scripture by scripture i praise him 
but I marvel that a man gifted with reason should wish to debase that faculty. It is true that Scripture should be explained by Scripture, so long as we are in difficulties about the meaning and intention of the prophets, but when we have elicited the true meaning, we must of necessity make use of our judgment and reason in order to assent thereto. If reason, however much as she rebels, is to be entirely subjected to Scripture, I ask, are we to effect her submission by her own aid, or without her and blindly? If the latter, we shall surely act foolishly and injudiciously. If the former, we assent to Scripture under the dominion of reason, and should not assent to it without her. Moreover, I may ask now, is a man to assent to anything against his reason? What is denial if it not be reason's refusal to assent? In short, I am astonished that any one should wish to subject reason, the greatest of gifts and a light from on high, to the dead letter which may have been corrupted by human malice, that it should be taught no crime to speak with contempt of mind, the true handwriting of God's word, calling it corrupt, blind and lost, while it is considered the greatest of crimes to say the same of the letter, which is merely the reflection and image of God's word. Men think it is pious to trust nothing to reason and their own judgment, and impious to doubt the faith of those who have transmitted to us the sacred books. Such conduct is not piety, but mere folly. And, after all, why are they so anxious? What are they afraid of? Do they think that faith and religion cannot be upheld unless men purposely keep themselves in ignorance and turn their backs on reason? If this be so, they have but a timid trust in Scripture. However, be it far from me to say that religion should seek to enslave reason, or reasoned religion, or that both should not be able to keep their sovereignty in perfect harmony, I will revert to this question presently, for I wish now to discuss Alpachar's rule. He requires, as we have stated, that we should accept as true or reject as false everything asserted or denied by Scripture, and he further states that Scripture never expressly asserts or denies anything which contradicts its assertions or negations elsewhere. The rashness of such a requirement and statement can escape no one. For, passing over the fact that he does not notice that Scripture consists of different books written at different times for different people by different authors, and also that his requirement is made on his own authority without any corroboration from reason or Scripture, he should be bound to show that all passages which are indirectly contradictory of the rest can be satisfactorily explained metaphorically through the nature of the language and the context. Further, that Scripture has come down to us untempered with However, we will go into the matter at length. Firstly, I ask what shall we do if reason prove recalcitrant? Shall we still be bound to affirm whatever Scripture affirms and to deny whatever Scripture denies? Perhaps it will be answered that Scripture contains nothing repugnant to reason. But I insist that it expressly affirms and teaches that God is jealous, namely in the Decalogue itself, and in Exodus chapter 34 verse 14, and in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 24, and in many other places. And I assert that such a doctrine is repugnant to reason. It must, I suppose, in spite of all, be accepted as true. If there are any passages in Scripture which imply that God is not jealous, they must be taken metaphorically as meaning nothing of the kind. So also Scripture expressly states, Exodus chapter 19, verse 20, etc., that God came down to Mount Sinai, and it attributes to him other movements from place to place, nowhere directly stating that God does not so move. Therefore, we must take the passage literally, and Solomon's words, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, But will God dwell on the earth? Behold, the heavens and earth cannot contain thee. 
inasmuch as they do not expressly state that god does not move from place to place but only imply it must be explained away till they have no further semblance of denying locomotion to the deity so also we must believe that the sky is the habitation and throne of god for scripture expressly says so and similarly many passages expressing the opinions of the prophets or the multitude which reason and philosophy but not scripture tell us to be false must be taken as true if we are to follow the guidance of our author for according to him reason has nothing to do with the matter further it is untrue that scripture never contradicts itself directly but only by implication for moses says in so many words deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 24 the lord thy god is a consuming fire and elsewhere expressly denies that god has any likeness to visible things deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 12 if it be decided that the latter passage only contradicts the former by implication and must be adapted thereto lest it seem to negative it let us grant that god is a fire or rather lest we should seem to have taken leave of our senses let us pass the matter over and take another example samuel expressly denies that god ever repents for he is not a man that he should repent first samuel chapter 15 verse 29 jeremiah on the other hand asserts that god does repent both of the evil and of the good which he had intended to do jeremiah chapter 18 verses 8 to 10 what are not these two texts directly contradictory which of the two then would our author want to explain metaphorically both statements are general and each is the opposite of the other what one flatly affirms the other flatly denies so by his own rule he would be obliged at once to reject them as false and to accept them as true again what is the point of one passage not being contradicted by another directly but only by implication if the implication is clear and the nature and context of the passage preclude metaphorical interpretation there are many such instances in the bible as we saw in chapter two where we pointed out that the prophet held different and contradictory opinions and also in chapters nine and ten where we drew attention to the contradictions in the historical narratives there is no need for me to go through them all again for what i have said sufficiently exposes the absurdities which would follow from an opinion and rule such as we are discussing and shows the hastiness of its propounder we may therefore put this theory as well as that of maimonides entirely out of court and we may take it for indisputable that theology is not bound to serve reason nor reason theology but that each has her own domain the sphere of reason is as we have said truth and wisdom the sphere of theology is piety and obedience the power of reason does not extend so far as to determine for us that men may be blessed through simple obedience without understanding theology tells us nothing else enjoins on us no command save obedience and has neither the will nor the power to oppose reason she defines the dogmas of faith as we pointed out in the last chapter only in so far as they may be necessary for obedience and leaves reason to determine their precise truth for reason is the light of the mind and without her all things are dreams and phantoms by theology i here mean strictly speaking revelation in so far as it indicates the object aimed at by scripture namely the scheme and manner of obedience or the true dogmas of piety and faith this may truly be called the word of god which does not consist in a certain number of books see chapter twelve theology thus understood if we regard its precepts or rules of life will be found in accordance with reason 
and if we look to its aim and object, it will be seen to be in no wise repugnant thereto, wherefore it is universal to all men. As for its bearing on Scripture, we have shown in chapter 7 that the meaning of Scripture should be gathered from its own history, and not from the history of nature in general, which is the basis of philosophy. We ought not to be hindered if we find that our investigation of the meaning of Scripture thus conducted shows us that it is here and there repugnant to reason. For whatever we may find of this sort in the Bible, which men may be in ignorance of, without injury to their charity, has, we may be sure, no bearing on theology or the word of God, and may, therefore, without blame, be viewed by everyone as he pleases. To sum up, we may draw the absolute conclusion that the Bible must not be accommodated to reason, nor reason to the Bible. Now, inasmuch as the basis of theology, the doctrine that man may be saved by obedience alone cannot be proved by reason, whether it be true or false, we may be asked, why then should we believe it? If we do so without the aid of reason, we accept it blindly and act foolishly and injudiciously. If, on the other hand, we settle that it can be proved by reason, theology becomes a part of philosophy and inseparable therefrom. But I make answer that I have absolutely established that this basis of theology cannot be investigated by the natural light of reason, or at any rate that no one ever has proved it by such means, and therefore revelation was necessary. We should, however, make use of our reason in order to grasp with moral certainty what is revealed. I say, with moral certainty, for we cannot hope to attain greater certainty than the prophets, yet their certainty was only moral, as I showed in chapter 2. Those, therefore, who attempt to set forth the authority of Scripture with mathematical demonstrations are wholly in error. For the authority of the Bible is dependent on the authority of the prophets, and can be supported by no stronger arguments than those employed in old time by the prophets for convincing the people of their own authority. Our certainty on the same subject can be founded on no other basis than that which served as foundation for the certainty of the prophets. Now, the certainty of the prophets consisted, as we pointed out, in these three elements. 1. A distinct and vivid imagination. 2. A sign. 3. Lastly and chiefly, a mind turned to what is just and good. It was based on no other reason than these, and consequently they cannot prove their authority by any other reasons, either to the multitude whom they addressed orally, nor to us whom they address in writing. The first of these reasons, namely the vivid imagination, could be valid only for the prophets. Therefore our certainty concerning revelation must and ought to be based on the remaining two, namely the sign and the teaching. Such is the express doctrine of Moses, for in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he bids the people obey the prophet who should give a true sign in the name of the Lord, but if he should predict falsely, even though it were in the name of the Lord, he should be put to death, as should also he who strives to lead away the people from the true religion, though he confirm his authority with signs and potents. We may compare with the above Deuteronomy chapter 13. Whence it follows that a true prophet could be distinguished from a false one, both by his doctrine and by the miracles he wrought. For Moses declares such an one to be a true prophet, and bids the people trust him without fear of deceit. He condemns as false and worthy of death those who predict anything falsely, even in the name of the Lord, or who preach false gods, even though their miracles be real. The only reason, then, which we have for belief in Scripture, or the writings of the prophets, is the doctrine we find therein, and the signs by which it is confirmed. 
for as we see that the prophets extol charity and justice above all things and have no other object we conclude that they did not write from unworthy motives but because they really thought that men might become blessed through obedience and faith further as we see that they confirm their teaching with signs and wonders we become persuaded that they did not speak at random nor run riot in their prophecies we are further strengthened in our conclusion by the fact that the morality they teach is in evident agreement with reason for it is no accidental coincidence that the word of god which we find in the prophets coincides with the word of god written in our hearts we may i say conclude this from the sacred books as certainly as did the jews of old from the living voice of the prophets for we showed in chapter twelve that scripture has come down to us intact in respect to its doctrine and main narratives therefore this whole basis of theology and scripture though it does not admit of mathematical proof may yet be accepted with the approval of our judgment it would be folly to refuse to accept what is confirmed by such ample prophetic testimony and what has proved such a comfort to those whose reason is comparatively weak and such a benefit to the state a doctrine moreover which we may believe in without the slightest peril or hurt and should reject simply because it cannot be mathematically proved it is as though we should admit nothing is true or as a wise rule of life which could ever in any possible way be called in question or as though most of our actions were not full of uncertainty and hazard i admit that those who believe that theology and philosophy are mutually contradictory and that therefore either one or the other must be thrust from its throne i admit i say that such persons are not unreasonable in attempting to put theology on a firm basis and to demonstrate its truth mathematically who unless he were desperate or mad would wish to bid an incontinent farewell to reason or to despise the arts and sciences or to deny reason's certitude but in the meanwhile we cannot wholly absolve them from blame inasmuch as they invoke the aid of reason for her own defeat and attempt infallibility to prove her fallible while they are trying to prove mathematically the authority and truth of theology and to take away the authority of natural reason they are in reality only bringing theology under reason's dominion and proving that her authority has no weight unless natural reason be at the back of it if they boast that they themselves assent because of the inward testimony of the holy spirit and that they only invoke the aid of reason because of unbelievers in order to convince them not even so can this meet with our approval for we can easily show that they have spoken either from emotion or vainglory it most clearly follows from the last chapter that the holy spirit only gives its testimony in favor of works called by paul in galatians chapter five verse twenty two the fruits of the spirit and is in itself really nothing but the mental acquiescence which follows a good action in our souls no spirit gives testimony concerning the certitude of matters within the sphere of speculation save only reason who is mistress as we have shown of the whole realm of truth if then they assert that they possess this spirit which makes them certain of truth they speak falsely and according to the prejudices of the emotions or else they are in great dread lest they should be vanquished by philosophers and exposed to public ridicule and therefore they flee as it were to the altar but their refuge is vain for what altar will shelter a man who has outraged reason however i pass such persons over for i think i have fulfilled my purpose and shown how philosophy should be separated from theology and wherein each consists that neither should be subservient to the other but that each should keep her unopposed dominion lastly 
As occasion offered, I have pointed out the absurdities, the inconveniences, and the evils following from the extraordinary confusion which has hitherto prevailed between the two subjects, owing to their not being properly distinguished and separated. Before I go further, I would expressly state, though I have said it before, that I consider the utility and the need for Holy Scripture or Revelation to be very great. For as we cannot perceive by the natural light of reason that simple obedience is the path of salvation, and are taught by revelation only that it is so by the special grace of God, which our reason cannot attain, it follows that the Bible has brought a very great consolation to mankind. All are able to obey, whereas they are but very few compared with the aggregate of humanity who can acquire the habit of virtue under the unaided guidance of reason. Thus, if we had not the testimony of Scripture, we should doubt of the salvation of nearly all men. End of section 16. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.